0: is patient theory 3 unit 3 part <coughs> sorry unit 2 part 3 <coughs> Twelve DCGs now we're on um, page something evolving MIs what do you mean okay I'll just get a burger today Sorry, my daughter and I were supposed to go for fish and chips, but it's buttered chicken today. <laughs> and hmm? mm-hmm. butter chicken here. Fun on the run. Mm-hmm. Oh. Damn. Yeah, Lydia says it's really good. That's so. nice. That's I've never seen a glint in her eye like that before, until <laughs> she talked about butter chicken. <laughs> no, Lydia. No, Lydia. <laughs> <laughs> she vowed to never laugh around us ever again. <laughs> all right, so so remember we were talking about um, uh, how an MI might present on a an ECG, and most commonly when you see a patient with acute ST segment elevation MI, they all have the p- the most prominent p- feature will be the ST segment elevation, elevation elevation. Excuse me. Over time, um, cardiac tissue will start to die. And you'll start to see pathological Q-Waves. And a pathological... Do anyone remember the criteria for pathological Q-Wave? <coughs> yeah, it means... N- yeah, pathological Q-Wave would be suggestive of necrosis. But you remember the criteria, the, how wide the Q-Wave has to be? One millimeter. And how deep does it have to be in relation to the R-Wave? the height of the area, yeah exactly, for it to be pathological. So over time, and QAs start to form between an hour and 12 hours typically. Um, You'll see necrosis. So in one hour to 12 hours seems like a really long time frame, but it really depends on how how much collateral circulation the patient has. (coughs) Um, So this is, um, um, where do you see an infarction happening here? First of all, do you see any ST segment elevation in lead two? Yes. It's very subtle. Any ST elevation in lead three? Mm-hmm. Yes. In AVF? Yes. Again, it's pretty subtle, but it's there. Uh, it's at least a millimeter, and a millimeter is all you need in two anatomically contiguous leads. But what you also see—you don't see it in lead two, but in lead three and AVF—you see pathological Q waves, and so this would be uh, an evolving MI. And um, (coughs) now this guy, interestingly enough, when you look at V1, V2, V3, V4, um, V1 is always negative, but V2 should be sort of um, biphasic, uh, should have a biphasic Q wave, and V3 should be a mostly positive R wave. Um, And When we see uh, V1, V2, V3, and V4 that's negative, Uh, even though there's a little R wave preceding the S wave, except in V3, they call that loss of transition. So this is a patient who's probably also had an old anterior wall infarct. Now he or she is having an inferior wall infarct. Sucks to be them. Uh, That's MI number two, it's not good, right? (coughs) So, Uh, that's an evolving MI on top of an old MI. Here's an old inferior wall MI. And you know it's old because we've got pathological QAs in two and AVF. Three, it's difficult to tell what the heck's going on there because there's some artifact mixed in there. But that's a patient with an old infarct. And I'll, I'll just tell you uh, what you're going to see in the field is um, you're going to see a lot of patients. Um, who have old inferior wall MIs and have no idea that they've had a heart attack in the past, not a clue. And that typically happens because when, a lot of times when patients have inferior wall MIs, they, um, they experience indigestion, they may feel weak and they feel just generally unwell and that can last a week or two weeks and then they start to perk up a bit. And they have no idea they've had an infarct until you come along two years later, three years, five years later, and you do a cardiogram on them, and you see an old inferior wall MI. Now, I'm not going to announce to announce. I'm not going to announce to the patient you've had an old heart attack. Um, you know, the physician can decide whether or not to do that. But but old MIs that are uh, unknown to the patient is very very common, and inferior being the most common old infarcts. So kind of fun to discover this stuff (laughs) not great for the patient obviously but you know you just look at it and go oh shit Um, and uh, uh, it's important from a clinical perspective because you know the patients who's um, got an old inferior wall infarct and now they're having an acute event maybe they're having another bout of chest pain and it's uh, Um, ischemia to another part of the heart those patients are at higher risk of heart failure right because they've already got uh, damaged myocardium they've got scar tissue they may have a right ventricle that's not um, an effective pump or as effective as a pump anymore they may experience hypotension syncope things like that So we, we already talked about this, uh, this idea of reciprocal changes, and where you see diagnostic reciprocal changes is primarily in inferior wall MI. So if you see ST segment elevation in two, two of the three inferior leads, 2, 3, and AVF, look at AVL. You can look at one as well, but AVL really nails the diagnosis most of the time. If the T wave's inverted or the ST segment's depressed, those are reciprocal changes, um, and uh, that's diagnostic. So it just, it doesn't mean that without them, they're not necessarily having an MI, but it just, it's a confirmation essentially. So in terms of assessment, um, you know, we do we do our ABCD. We um, take a history, develop a differential diagnosis. Um, we initiate treatments. So um, most often we don't administer O2 unless they're desaturated. We put them on the monitor. Uh, we establish IV, we administer nitroglycerin, ASA. Uh, Morphine is rarely given these days unless um, the criteria for um, STEMI management for ACBs is 3-nitro and then switch to morphine. (coughs) Morphine's longer lasting and nitro's not likely to have any effect at that point. Someone's supposed to kiss now or something? a couple somewhere. and in hospital they 'll uh, administer nitro infusions and just as a total sidebar with nitro infusions, um, their uh, nitroglycerin is put into glass bottles as opposed to plastic bags, uh, because plastic is polyvinyl chloride, and the nitro molecule is so tiny it gets caught in the in the nooks and crannies of the plastic, so it's carried in glass bottles. So, if you ever transport a post MI patient or an unstable angina patient uh, with a nurse or nurse RT escort and they've got a glass bottle of nitroglycerin, what I recommend doing is um, once you get the patient over onto your stretcher and uh, you get the nitro bottle onto your IV pole. Um, Put a 4x4 dressing, you don't even need to take it out of the package, put a 4x4 dressing between your IV pole and the bottle and wrap one single piece of tape around it and that holds it secure and keeps it from bouncing and decreases your risk of shattering the bottle. (coughs) Because you can't just have that bottle swinging while you're driving, right? So uh, we've talked about treatments before. When... When we're assessing patients with uh, suspected STEMI or actual STEMI, um, there are things that we need to assess um, and and rule out, so for example, we're essentially screening the patient for thrombolytics, even though we're not administering thrombolytics, but we're gonna rule out things like any active bleeding, so we uh, wanna ask them if they have any GI bleeding before we give um, ASA, we wanna ask them if they've got any stroke or head injury, things like that. Um, We wanna rule out uh, how do we, Excuse me how do we attempt to rule out dissecting thoracic aortic aneurysm brianna right Uh, and how do we uh well pericarditis we haven't talked about but um, uh, pericarditis are likely to have a fever or have had a recent flu-like symptoms and on the cardiogram they'll have uh, diffuse sd segment elevation Uh, So across all the leads. So some relative contraindications for thrombolytic therapy include recent surgery, trauma, GI bleeding, recent stroke, pregnancy, or prolonged CPR. Prolonged CPR usually means more than 10 minutes. Um, But the reality is um, a number of STEMI patients get transported from the scene and they go into cardiac arrest and CPR is started. And 20 minutes later, uh, the crew will put the VSA patient on um, the... um, on the bed in the PCI lab, they'll continue chest compressions while the um, interventionalist catheterizes them and opens up the artery, and that's oftentimes when they get a pulse back. So once they open up that artery, so uh, where there used to be you know a lot of pessimism about patients with cardiac arrest, now they just keep running the arrest. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that interrupted. Something. The PCI. No, no, because all the, all the uh, interventionalist does is while chest compressions are going on, they'll access either the radial artery or the femoral artery and just, yeah, just feed the catheter. <coughs> yeah, yeah. So. so the objectives is, um, you know, when it comes to an occlusion uh, or angina for that matter, there's an imbalance between supply and demand. So how do we try to address that issue? A um, couple of ways, <coughs> oops, I thought I had more bullet points there, yeah. so we, we're we going to decrease demand by, you know, uh, having the patient sit uh, if they're walking around, semi-sitting, uh, unless the patient's hypotensive, then we'll have them laying down with maybe their head elevated slightly. Uh, we're going to increase supply, so um, O2 PRN, if the SpO2 is um, less than, 94 or 93 or 92, whatever is appropriate. Um, We're gonna decrease demand on the heart by giving them nitroglycerin. So, nitro is predominantly a venodilator and when you decrease venous return or preload, it decreases the workload of the heart. The heart doesn't have to work as hard. um, uh, And uh, that decreases myocardial oxygen consumption. MVO2 is myocardial oxygen consumption. (coughs) ASA is one of the most effective drugs we carry. It, um, uh, in, a, in a study many years ago um, involving well over 10,000 patients, might have been as many as 20,000 patients, comparing ASA to um, streptokinase, which was the prototype uh, thrombolytic, uh, it decreased mortality by 23%. That's really incredible. So it saves basically one in four lives, which is, uh, uh, you know, on your PICO. Scale because I know you guys have been talking Pico with Ian. That's a pretty incredible outcome. You think about it, right? There are very few interventions that um, you know save one and four have a 23 percent reduction in uh, mortality. Pretty incredible. So, uh, so yeah, number needed to treat four. Incredible. So uh, decreases in demand, um, but when you administer. Morphine. Morphine is also a venodilator, dilator, preload reducer. It's because it's also an analgesic and has some sedative properties. It decreases anxiety and uh, that decreases the workload in the heart. So it, it blunts the sympathetic response or catecholamine release. <coughs> and um, we uh, decrease demand and increase supply by. Uh, in hospital by initiating a nitro infusion which will help dilate some of the coronary vessels and improve collateral blood flow and nitroglycerin has been shown to save lives uh, but those studies are based on treatments in hospital typically with patients who are on nitro drips so there's there's we really don't know whether pre-hospital nitroglycerin uh, decreases morbidity or mortality we know it relieves symptoms but we don't know for certain if it decreases morbidity, mortality, or length of hospital stay, or any of those things. So transport to a PCI center. There are AHA guidelines, and then there's the ALS-PCS. I'll go over the AHA. You already know what the ALS-PCS is, but I'll just go over the uh, AHA guideline because it's a little bit different, and you should be aware that, you know, not everything written in your ALS-PCS is gospel or evidence-based. So um, signs and symptoms consistent with cardiac ischemia. That's the important context, right? So if a patient is asymptomatic and they've got ST segment changes, we don't get hot and bothered about getting that patient to a PCI center. So ST elevation of at least a millimeter and two anatomically contiguous limb leads, that means the inferior leads, right, 2-3-AVF, that's standard. or <coughs> and this is where it deviates from your ALS-PCS. At least two millimeters ST segment elevation in men are 1.5 in women in two or more anatomically contiguous precordial leads. And that means basically V1 through V6. Yeah? Why is it um, It's t- purely based on epidemiological studies where, where they've examined um, these are usually retro, uh, retrospective studies where they've examined uh, ECGs and those same patients who've had um, angi- angiograms um, to determine that women with uh, a lesser amount of ST segment elevation are likely to be infarcting. There's a, there's a document out, and I recommend reading it. I'm not gonna test you on that level of 12 lead ECGs, but there's a document out, you can just Google it, um, it's called, um, it's on EMCrit, the EMCrit site, E-M-C-R-I-T, and it's called the Occlusive Myocardial Infarction Manifesto. And it looks at more subtle signs of acute MI, including, you know, a millimeter, or 1.5 millimeters ST elevation in women. And, um, it's, it's called a manifesto because the author who wrote it and Dr. Scott Weingart, who hosts the EMCRET uh, website, feel strongly that we're missing way too many infarcts. So, a lot of patients who are infarcting are getting missed because they don't meet the STEMI criteria. And uh, that is probably important, right? There's, um, <coughs> so there's, there's, um, I wouldn't say a high, but there's a certain level of false negative uh, that happened where patients are uh, dismissed as not needing PCI because they don't quite meet the STEMI criteria. On the flip side, there's also the risk of false positives. And so if you have a patient you think has a subtle case of occlusive myocardial infarction and you take them to the PCI center, it turns out their blood vessels are perfectly clear there's a big cost to the system to taking them to the PCI center and then having to repatriate them back to their local hospital later by some other vehicle. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand they want to catch as many patients who are actually infarcting as possible. On the other hand, we don't want too many false positive because then the whole as terrible as it sounds, return on investment in in the healthcare system is is lost, right? When you're wasting a lot of money on false positives. <coughs> I had a false positive once. He really looked like he was having an infarct. And uh, we thought for sure he was having an infarct. And we took him there and his, his vessels were clear. But it turns out he was having a big pulmonary embolus. Uh, but he presented clinically exactly like an MI. He had heavy chest pain and he had ST segment elevation in his anterior leads. And, uh, uh, but he was having a pulmonary embolism. So um, right there, uh, in the PCI lab they gave him a, a low dose thrombolytic to break up the clot in his lungs mm-hmm. and then the chest discomfort went away so uh, it was a false positive but, uh, but the doc said no you brought him in the right place anyway so <laughs> it was really interesting <coughs> unusual case <coughs> yeah so um, so we, V1, through, V1 through V4 are anatomically contiguous for anterior septal. Um, as I said before, the purists would say V1, V2 are the septal leads, V3, V4 are the anterior leads. So ideally, um, if, you saw, so if you saw, for example, ST segment elevation in V2, V3, um, technically that would not constitute a STEMI although I would call it a STEMI if they were having chest discomfort, I would call the the interventionalist and just describe it as such. Um, But if you have V3 and V4, then you've got an anterior STEMI. If you've got V1, V2, V3, V4, you've got an anterior septal STEMI. And then the V5, V6 are the lateral leads. So those are usually a reflection. The culprit vessel for that is usually the the circumflex artery. (coughs) And... uh, Yeah. Precordial ones V1 through v- V6. So cordial meaning cardiac and precordial meaning the ones on the chest. Does that make sense? So you're looking for ST segment elevation 2 millimeters ST segment elevation in V3 V4 or V1 through V4 or 5 and eight, uh, V5 V6. So V5, V6 would be anatomically contiguous. V1 through V4 would be anatomically contiguous. Does that make sense? So, um, like I said, V3, V4 is anterior. V1, V2 is, is um, septal. But if I saw ST elevation in V2, V3, I'd be calling the cardiac interventionalist for a consult. If you work for a service that doesn't call Cardiac Interferentialist for consult, if it says STEMI positive, you go to the PCI center. If it doesn't say STEMI positive or star, 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 cute myocardial infarction, then you don't go. It's pretty straightforward. That makes sense? Lychee balls. Lychee's like a juicy fruit, right? Yeah. yeah. just flavored some dough balls with lychee. And apparently Andrea really likes them. <laughs> no, I didn't. I ate them in my own. Now <laughs> I, I grade this out because um, it's a little bit tricky to diagnose an acute myocardial infarction in a patient who's got a left bundle branch block. And the reason is, uh, you know, if you think about uh, what's happening anatomically with infarcts, the vast majority of infarcts happen in the left ventricle, right? They involve the anterior wall, the lateral wall, or the inferior wall. And if you've got a bundle branch block here, what's going to happen is when the ventricle depolarizes, the right ventricle is going to depolarize first, and then the left ventricle is going to depolarize. So, very difficult to diagnose. An acute MI in the setting of a left bundle branch block, unless you use the modified Scarbosa criteria or the the Smith Scarbosa um, criteria. And um, you don't need to memorize this because I'm not going to test you on it, uh, but um, um, if you do a, a Google search for Scarbosa criteria, Let me see, I think I might have it on the next slide. It's not in your book, by the way. But um, I think I might have it on the next slide. I already talked about ST segment scoring. Uh, No, don't have it there. Okay, (laughs) hang on a second.